Thank you, worship team. Terrific job. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. You know, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all about good news. And ultimately, it's about the good news about forgiveness of sins and eternal life available to all through the Jewish Messiah, who's also the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. But it's also true the Bible contains a lot of hard news. The Bible contains a lot of bad news. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's bad news. That's hard news. Uh, the, uh, the wages of sin is death. That's hard news. That's bad news. Now, in Psalm 73, we're going to see a believer, an Old Testament believer, by the name of Asaph, work through a crisis of faith as he recoils from the hard news, the bad news, that very often in this world in which Ben Harrington lives, or Brent Corbin lives, even in Tulsa this is true, or uh, Chris Raska lives, or Brad McCoy lives, in this world and we live in now, very often, good people suffer. I mean, horribly, intently. And at the same time, many bad people prosper. I mean, how do you, how do you add all that up? I mean, you gotta look up if you take God seriously and wonder what's going on. Well, moving from Asaph in the 10th century BC to Phil Klein or, uh, Zane Britton, or Savannah Bowers in the 21st century A.D., uh, I'd ask you guys and all of us, how do, how do we deal with that same hard news that very often in this world in which we live in, loved ones who are righteous believers find out they have leukemia, and uh, Hugh Hefner, as far as I know, is still going strong at 192 or whatever he is. He looks, looks that old uh, to me. Not that I hang out with him that much, but uh, occasionally when I'm out in you know, California. But uh, what you're going to find out is in this wonderful psalm, Psalm 73, I hope you'll never forget where it's at and what it teaches. You kind of have the book of Job compressed in one chapter, don't you, Brent? Because you're going to see that Asaph goes through a crisis of faith and bounces out of it, and he moves from questioning God's goodness to confessing God's greatness. And there's a process he goes through that we can go through, too, that will allow us, I think, to do that. I talk about the bad news. Jesus says, uh, until I come back, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. And who in the Bible exactly said, uh, in this world, you will have tribulation. And that, that's, a, that's a promise. That's a Bible promise, Dennis. But who said that? Moses? That was Jesus. He said that. So that's a promise you can bank on. It's a promise we all deal with every day. And so I think Psalm 73 uh, as part of this larger mini-series we're doing can help us a lot in that direction. But, uh, yeah, it's a hard world out there, and there are people that hate us and are willing to blow themselves up to kill us uh, for their false religion. So let's pray for those who uh, serve and protect, and let's pray for a special measure of teachability this morning to God's Word. Okay, let's, let's go to prayer. Lord, we look to You after worshiping You with these wonderful psalms, songs, I should say, that really express the essence of the Psalms about the greatness of Jesus Christ and His resurrection power. And today, Father, I pray You'd be glorified, not just in the worship time, but we would 
worship you by uh, feeding on your word. And I pray you'd make each one of us teachable and you'd open uh, our eyes to the illumination of the Holy Spirit who inspired this text to allow believers to see, believe, and apply and embrace this seminal truth you're about to show us again from Psalm 73. Uh, we pray for those who protect and serve us and certainly we pray for our active military deployed all over the world. And I'm so uh, thankful for parents like David Stribling, and I know they're making a sacrifice too and letting their sons serve. But we pray for, uh, as well, those who are closer to home, for uh, peace officers who literally put their lives on the line every time they get in a squad car, or, uh, knock on a door, uh, firefighters, who are at the ready to go to run to places most of us would run away from. And I pray for those, especially those who are believers, that you would strengthen their sense of calling and serving, whether a male or female, young or old. And I pray for their families that support them and also serve and, and sacrifice as well. I pray you'd encourage and, and bless them in a special way. I thank you for this new day of a new week you're giving us. The first significant thing we're doing is gathering here in the name of Jesus Christ to celebrate his resurrection, to worship, fellowship, pray, and now to feed on your inspired word. And I pray you'd be pleased with that process and the product of that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 73. This is the second week of a uh, four-week miniseries that's roughly entitled, uh, What's a Christian to Do When the Whole World's Falling Apart? And kind of our theme throughout this mini-series is when the world is falling apart, and it really is at so many levels uh, in our culture, don't panic. Pray, plan, and persevere with a perspective rooted in faith in certain facts over our feelings. Because if you go with your feelings, you're going to be in panic palace a lot. Uh, last week in Psalm 11, uh, David was encouraged to give up on God and to give up on his personal responsibilities to God and others uh, because uh, the whole foundations of his culture were falling apart. And his response was, you know what? There's actually a lot of things we can do. The righteous can do a lot of things when the foundations are broken. Uh, we can predecide to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. There's a long acronym for that, but we won't go over that again. Uh, we should doubt our doubts and doubt those who deny that God's relevant in the situation. And we should be energized by reflecting on key truths about who God is and his sovereign control and redemptive purposes in our lives, regardless of where the culture is heading. Now, this week, Psalm 73, the second of four messages, we're going to see a believer by the name of Asaph, and you'll meet this guy in heaven eventually. You'll eventually bump into him, uh, who questions God's goodness in light of the fact so often good people suffer and bad people prosper. It's just not fair. And you have to admit, as you look at that close up, as many of us have, it does make it look like God's not keeping his part of the deal, doesn't it? But that conclusion is based on a false premise. And by the way, the deal, I don't even like that. It's kind of a sacrilegious term. The deal, God hasn't made deals with us, you know. He does, he does covenants, yeah, but deals, uh, Donald Trump does deals, okay, I just let you know. Uh, the deal, God's plan, program, and uh, purpose 
is not him ensuring that nothing difficult is going to happen to you under the sun. Uh, that's not the deal. The deal is not immunity from suffering and death in the now for believers. That, that's not the deal. If that's what you're expecting, you've got a false expectation. Uh, the deal is God's providential direction for believers through the suffering that's inevitable in this life and ultimately our physical death, unless we're living in the rapture generation, followed by an eternity with our Savior in which suffering and death will not exist. Now, that's a whale of a deal, Sherry. That's a whale of a deal. But as a theologian, that's called that God's uh, plan, purpose, and program. Plus, it's got three Ps, and as a speech teacher, I like that too. Psalm 73 is 28 verses that the whole book of Job in one chapter, the Bible, as it were, breaks down into three parts. First, looking around our world is depressing. In part because a lot of great things happen to bad people and a lot of horrible things happen to good people. Looking up and beyond our world, however, is refreshing and it allows us to embrace a rational and a biblical perspective. And then uh, looking at life and death in faith moves us, like it moved Asaph, from questioning God's goodness to confessing and living in light of his greatness. Wow, that's pretty good. Let's uh, look at that first section there, verses 1 through 14. Looking around our world is dis- depressing, distressing. Uh, let me read the first 14 verses of Psalm 73 from New American Standard Bible. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor as they, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak as if from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades throughout the earth. Therefore, his people will return to his place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? What does God know? Is there any knowledge, any relevance with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They're always increasing in their wealth. Now, not, last, not for the last week or so since the stock market has gone down, but in general. right? Surely in vain, Asaph, the believer, who kind of thought the deal was good things would always happen to good people and bad things would always happen to bad people. And that's not happening. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Getting a little self-righteous there, Asaph. And wash my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Wow. Looking around our world is depressing, especially lately. Thoughtful people who look at reality around us are going to be tempted to despair because life under the sun often stinks. Let's look and see what that looks like. Verse 1, a song, psalm of Asaph, just as inspired as the rest of the psalm. Surely God is good to Israel, the people of God. In his context, the Old Testament, we might say to the New Testament church we're living in, in, in our context, uh, to those who are pure in heart. God's good to his people. And you know how he knows that? 
He learned it in Saturday school. He didn't go to Sunday school. He's a Jewish guy in the Old Testament. He goes to church on goes to synagogue, as it were, worshiping on, on Saturday. He's heard that, and he believes that. And he's probably learned uh, courses about that in Hebrew, and he, he believes it. But the problem is, you look around, it doesn't look like it. Look at his dilemma. Verse 2 and 3. But as for me, I mean, I know God's good to his people, but i got problems. And I'm one of his people, so what's the deal? But as for me, my feet have come, come close to stumbling. I've almost been killed a couple times. Uh, my steps have almost slipped. And I was arrogant or envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. A lot of the stuff I've had to put up with, the guy across the street who's gone through three wives, living with his girlfriend, is taking drugs and selling drugs, doesn't seem to have those issues. So what's going on? I thought God's supposed to be good to his people. I'm, I'm not seeing that. i got all kinds of problems, and I'm one of his people. Look at verse 4 through 11. He's going to give kind of a selective and exaggerated uh, survey of the lives of bad people, as he defines those. Uh, for after all, there are no pains in their death. They all you know, die quietly in their sleep, right? That's not true, but he's exaggerating. But this is an, an errant recording of his point of view. If you focus on the bad stuff and... And, and you kind of, uh, reduce God down to your personal, uh, consultant, you're gonna end up kind of with a lot of exaggerated aches and pains and issues, even though there are real issues we gotta deal with here. There are no pains in the death of the wicked, you know, uh, and their body is fat. Now today we'd say, well, at least they're fat, you know, but, uh, back that was a subsistence culture, and very few people had enough to even be at a normal weight. So if you were overweight, you were, uh, very, very, very well off physically. And his point is, I know a lot of people who are, as it were, selling drugs for a living and they're all overweight. And the rest of us who are working hard are 118 pounds, you know, soap and wet, you know, uh, sop and wet. So, well, so the fat there is actually a blessing, is the point. Uh, they're not in trouble like everybody else, nor are they plagued like mankind generally. Therefore, they really think they got it figured out. The, the atheist, the agnostic, the person that puts God on a shelf and does whatever they want to do and it seems to work for them, really are arrogant and full of pride. Therefore, pride's their, their necklace and the garment of violence covers them. They'll do whatever they've got to do to get whatever they want. Uh, their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run right. You can think of some of the excesses. The Golden Globe last week, you know, it was so uh, profane. They kind of almost... Uh, uh, I, didn't, I don't even watch it anymore, but uh, I heard it was really bad. And these people just think they're so cute, so funny, and they're so rich, and they have all this clout in our culture. And to me, I mean, why don't we put teachers and police officers and military on our pedestals as, as opposed to people who are really good at getting in front of a camera and pretending to be something they're not? That's what an actor is. That's my definition of being an actor. All of you actors out there, cheer up. You're really good at being something you're not or pretending to be, right? And hey, I was Joseph in my Christmas play, as kindergartner says. So I have a little acting experience, so I know how it feels. Uh, you wouldn't believe how my mom, she just thought I should have gotten an award for that. And I had, I had one line at that Christmas play. Thank you, you are very kind. My cross the street neighbor, Linda Perez, was Mary. She had all the lines because she could remember them. And then when the guy at the end said, well, we've got no rooms, but you can go uh, where the animals are, that was my one line. And everybody was so afraid I was going to blow it, but I actually got it out, you know. So, so I, I know what it's like to be an actor. Um, but he's exaggerating, but he's just telling you where the way he feels. He's being honest about his feelings, his perceptions. Uh, the the prosperous, wicked people mock and wickedly speak of oppressing others. 
of ripping people off in business deals or other things. They speak as if from on high. They got seemingly have all the clout. I've talked to some of you who've had uh, opportunities to, to be on boards with very important people, and a lot of those people are not the kind of people, they're kind of slimy. You know, they're not all just sterling in their qualities. Uh, they set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue parades throughout all the earth. Therefore, his people, he's thinking of some drug kingpin or some ISIS leader or some really, really bad person who controls people, they work for him, and they go and do his bidding, killing people, robbing people, extorting from people. They return back to Mr. Big's place, and they're having a big party. It's not like God's throwing down you know, lightning bolts at them, putting out of business. Uh, and it says, waters of abundance are drunk by them. Now, in a subsistence desert culture, having more than enough water, we know how that feels. You know, Until uh, uh, this past, what, May and June, we were like, under serious drought conditions, and if God had to change things around, we would have had big problems. But uh, that's what he's talking about here. He's just saying it just doesn't seem to add up that some of the worst people I'm aware of have more than enough and all this power and all this clout, and when they go out and do bad things, they come back and have a party, and the waters of abundance, trust me, are being watered down by stronger drinks than that at these parties. They're getting drunk and, and debauching themselves. And then they say, in the midst of these parties, the, the wicked people, uh, the Hugh Hefners of the world, the ISIS leaders of the world, uh, how does God know the God of the Bible? They, they denounce the God of the Bible, including ISIS. They, they think that we're all uh, heretics because we believe in a triune God. Uh, God's not there or he's not really listening or not watching. doesn't really matter. There's no knowledge. He just doesn't know what's going on. If he does, he doesn't care. Verse 12. Asaph kind of takes his breath and says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, always getting richer. And so his preliminary conclusion is given in verse 13. Preliminary conclusion is really kind of crystallized in 13. Look at this, Brent. Uh, his premise is, since God's good to his people, his people ought to always get good stuff, and people who aren't his people ought to always get bad stuff, and it doesn't work like that. And he's done some forensic science to prove that. So his preliminary conclusion is crystallized in verse 13. Surely in vain, from a pragmatic point of view, I'm supposed I'm a good person, I should be getting good stuff back and only good stuff back. Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure. Now again, he's self-righteous there because he's probably not perfect in his walk with uh, Yahweh at this point. None of us are. And wash my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long. And in Saturday school, verse 1, I was told God's good to his people. And I have all kinds of problems. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. That's the problem. When you look around the world, there's a lot of hard stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff. And it doesn't really add up very well most of the time. Let's go rapidly to moving toward a, a resumption or a kind of a resolution to this crisis of faith. Look at verses 15 through 20. Uh, from looking around the world and being depressed, we're going to look up and beyond the world and be refreshed. Look at verse 15. If I had said in my mind, I will speak thus. I'm going to say everything I just said in verses 1 through 14 at my synagogue or before other people of God or my family. Behold, I realized I would have been betraying the generation of your children. Yet, when I pondered to understand why my preliminary conclusion was wrong, it was troublesome in my sight. I couldn't see why I was wrong in my conclusions, but I know I must be wrong. So you've got to give them credit for that. 
Until, that is, he stopped looking around exclusively and started looking up. I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. The wicked, far from God, who seemingly prospers and ignores, if not blasphemes God, is one heartbeat away from the justice bar of God. And that's not a good place to be when you're estranged from Him. Uh, it was I didn't understand how it could possibly be fair that all these people were doing so well until I looked up and I perceived their end. One nanosecond after they die. Then He says, Surely, God, You have set them in slippery places. They are in a precarious position whether they live in a beautiful palace. It doesn't matter because you're going to cast them down to destruction. They're going to be destroyed in a moment after their last heartbeat. They're going to be utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, the illusion that they're autonomous from God uh, is going to be shattered. Oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Wow. Uh, verses uh, 15 through 20 is saying, look, uh, after you look around for a while and get depressed, look up and beyond our world and the now and be refreshed. Thoughtful people informed by faith in God's person and program will be tempered, realizing God has out of this world things planned for everybody and it's blessing for those who know Christ. Look at verses 15, 16 and 17 again. Uh, he says, and this is really uh, amazing honesty, I think, because he's really getting himself worked up and angry at God for several verses there. But in verse 15, he kind of slows the thing down and he starts questioning his conclusions. And he says, you know, I, I know I'm wrong and I realize that uh, I'm so worked up I could go, you know, get on my blog and say God's unfair or I could go to a sharing time and talk about how unfair God is or a synagogue or a meeting with my uh, my family or something. Uh, I realize that if I had said I'll speak my conclusions that God's unfair and it doesn't, it doesn't work, uh, I realized I would have betrayed the generation of your children, God. I realized that you're at work in some way I don't understand. Uh, but when I pondered to understand how that was even possible, I couldn't connect the dots. It was troublesome in my sight until I left the now and went up to the not yet. And that was catalyzed by him going to the sanctuary of God, which would have, Asaph apparently was one of the musical leaders in David's and Solomon's era. And so he, he went to church, even though he didn't feel like going to church. And he allowed himself to kind of get a broader perspective on reality. As Christians, we have an unapologetic, uh, uh, supernatural worldview. Okay? Now, I've got a, a, a bachelor's degree in biology, and I did several years of graduate work at University of Texas Dental Branch, the world's worst dental student. But I learned a lot of biological, biochemical science while I was there. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I realized, as Brent said, uh, you know, I've been teaching part-time at Cameron, and I'm not teaching biology, I'm teaching speech mainly, and a few other things, religion, stuff like that. But just, uh, I'm starting my 13th year as a part-time teacher there, and for sure, the whole mindset of uh, students uh, has has become radically hardened to some of the most basic biblical precepts and assumptions. You know, we're, we're definitely in a post-Christian worldview, uh, you know, and we can panic about that. <clears throat> and it is sad to see, 
But you know, the darker the background, the brighter the light shines. So that's, you know, that's what we've got to keep in mind, I think. Sorry. That's just to make sure everybody's awake. Uh, microphone check there. But yeah, he, he's saying, you know, I was really feeling sorry for myself, but I still didn't feel, I had a catch in my spirit. I knew I had to be wrong, and I wasn't going to blab all this all over the place, because I knew I must have been wrong. But I didn't see how until I factored in the not yet, not just the now, but the not yet, and then look at what he says in verse 18. Uh, rather than envy the wicked who are unregenerate, we should shudder for them. Okay? And you see some guy who molests children and he gets a death sentence and then they find out they put up the paperwork wrong and they let him go. And you're going, that is so unfair. It's horrible. It's terrible. How can that possibly? Why would God let that happen? Certainly he's got to be a limit there. Now, uh, he's got a big plan. It includes people making... You're, you're free to make really stupid, sinful, selfish, horrible choices in this world we live in. If every time an atheist picked up a pen or write a, uh, an atheistic thought, if his pen would blow up, every time somebody wanted to shoot a policeman, you know, the uh, gun would turn into jello, then you'd have people pointing guns at policemen all day long, and you'd have people trying to write stuff all day long, and you wouldn't have a moral universe. I mean, suddenly people would be conditioned. You can make... One thing I did learn in psychology at college was you can take certain types of birds in cages and you can electrify certain parts of that cage and you can teach birds, Phil, to do what looks like a dance by electrifying certain parts of the cage. Every time they hit it, you hit the thing. And they'll, got to, they'll get to where you play a certain piece of music. They'll start dancing for you. Okay? God hasn't created the universe like that. It's, it's different. We actually make real choices under his sovereign care. And uh, rather than envy the wicked, we ought to shudder for them because when you look at one heartbeat beyond their lives in the now, uh, they're going to be cast down to destruction. They're going to be destroyed utterly by sudden terrors. Uh, and their life now is going to be like a dream or the soap bubble popping. Uh, it's so funny. Uh, you know, you can, In my day, you go to the dime store and you get this little jar, as I remember it, and with a little deal, you stick it in the jar and you kind of blow on it and you get these little bubbles like that. That was fun, you know. But nowadays, uh, thanks to, I think, NASA and the space program came up with these big things. You can buy at the dollar store. You can get, get tw- little twins. We've got three-year-old twins, you know. Take them to the dollar store. They buy this big old vat thing and you pour this really super viscous stuff in there and you get this big old round thing with a big circle. You put it in there and you, anybody, three-year-old can do this to get all these bubbles. It's great. But when, when uh, Vivian... Lincoln make all these bubbles, soap bubble, bubbles. Of course, Lincoln is a kid. Boy, he wants to hit them, kick them, you know, step on them. And it, you really can't, because as soon as you try to touch one, it goes away, you know. And in a sense, the wicked who are prospering apart from God are living in a dream world. It's real. I mean, the, the, the now is real, and it's important. But it's not ultimate, it's only temporary. But it, But one heartbeat after... They go to the other side. All this affluence they've enjoyed is going to be like nothing. It's going to be like a little soap bubble. It's going to be uh, unreal in that sense. Uh, like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. We ought to shudder for those who are prospering because they're molesting children or selling women in slavery or selling drugs or whatever it is they're doing out there. By right, looking around our world is depressing. You already knew that. Looking up beyond can and should be refreshing. It's one reason you come to church, kind of re- recharge your batteries. Uh, and then, this is my favorite part, verses 21 through 28, looking at life and death in faith, 
moves us from questioning God's goodness to confessing His greatness. And that's a really good place to be for a believer. Look at uh, verse 21. True confession time. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, Asaph says, when I was really, really, really mad at you and convinced it couldn't possibly have any answers, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a, a beast, like a dumb animal before you. Nevertheless, even in my worst moment of doubt and spiritual crisis, I am and have been continually with you, connected with you, because you've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me for the rest of my life on earth, and afterward receive me to glory. Now, what did he say about the estranged, uh, uh, prosperous, unregenerate? They're in slippery places now, cast down to destruction, destroyed in a moment, sudden terrors. He's going to despise their form. But for the believer who maybe, unfortunately, has horrible things happen to them now in this world, uh, God's going to guide us with His counsel and receive us to glory forever. Then He says, Who have I really in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. I'm going to put you at the very center of my pie chart, as it were. My flesh and my heart will fail. There's another promise nobody wants. Jesus said, hey, Ken, what's... Take some Bible promises home with you today, okay? In this world, you will have tribulation. Your heart and your flesh are going to fail. Now, Ken works out, can I say this, religiously? This is a church, I'll say that. He works out a lot harder than I do, and he's in really good shape. But eventually, it's all going to go away, brother. Just, uh, but hold on to it as long as you can. Uh, and i got to tell you what, um, I was really encouraged this week because I, I think that you know, Ken's a guy with some unique wisdom and insight, and I think it's starting to rub off on your wife because uh, she wrote me a very nice email this week, and she said, you know, you've got that 80,000 uh, a day uh, quote, uh, a figure statistic in the bulletin that 80,000 people a day are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and she's not critical, but, you know, Ken is a great analytical thinker, and he's taught his wife to be a great analytical thinker. And she just said, basically, where are you getting that number, boy? <laughs> you know what? And that, that blew my mind when I heard that number. And, uh, and I, but I was very happy to get the, the question. And I was actually, uh, do you know Eric McTaxis? You know that name? Yeah. You know, he works with uh, Breakpoint or um, uh, Charles Colson's organization, uh, which I've forgotten the name of it. But their, their website and their radio program is called Breakpoint. I was just driving one morning and I was listening to Breakpoint and Eric Metaxas uh, was talking about some stuff and he said, uh, you know, we tend to think that because at so many levels the, the institutional visible church in America is compromising on so many things and going down the tubes that that means God's church is going down the tubes. And he said, nah. I mean, really, the, the vast majority of people coming to faith are south of the equator. God's not just, God's not an American. I, you know, I love America, but God's not an American. He's bigger. He's bigger than that, okay? So he was making that point, and he said, the most recent statistics indicate that 80,000 people a day are coming to faith in Jesus Christ worldwide, 10,000 of them 10,000 of them every day from Muslim backgrounds. Now, when, I'm skeptical too. When I heard that number, I thought that was too good to be true. Now, on the other hand, we have 7 billion people on the earth. So if you do the math, 80,000 is, is, is a tiny fraction, but it's still a big round number. So, uh, uh, in fact, I was driving to Cameron that morning, about 7.45, listening to Breakpoint, 
I got in there before I could even uh, do anything else. I uh, turned on my computer and I went to Breakpoint because they have transcripts of those uh, programs they do to make sure he said 80,000 and not 8,000 or 800 or 80, you know. And it was 80,000. And uh, I'm assuming, I, I know they do research. And I didn't look at the footnote, but I'm pretty sure they got that number from Pew or somebody who actually does, uh, you know, sociological religious research. So, yeah, I mean, some good things are happening. But uh, why did I get up on that? I'm not sure. But anyway, I know what it was, Ken. It was your fault because it says, uh, my flesh and my heart will fail when we start talking about Ken and, and that number of stuff. So that's, that's more than you want to know about that. Uh, Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you, who don't have a relationship with you, unregenerate folk, will perish. Right? Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, John 3.16. Those who don't believe will perish. And he says, you've destroyed all those who are unfaithful, who haven't put faith in you. Uh, All unbelievers, nobody gets off with a technicality or paperwork problem or a better lawyer. But as for me, as a believer... Uh, and God's good to his people, the nearness of God is my good. He doesn't go away when you lose your job. He doesn't go away when your husband's in a plane crash. He doesn't go away when your children stray away from you. The nearness of God is your good now. And so he says, in effect, rather than questioning God's goodness, my job is to confess his greatness. I've made the Lord God my refuge. And my job is to tell of all your works. Love that part of, uh, of that psalm. Looking at life and death and faith can lead us from uh, questioning God's goodness to confessing His greatness. Look at verse 21, 22 again. Uh, he says, he just admits, hey, when I was really mad at you back in verses 2 through 14, I was like a dumb animal. I was just was out of, out of uh, uh, what do I want to say, uh, out of line. Uh, it's inappropriate. I just don't have enough information to legitimately second guess you. That's all it is. Uh, I was like a dumb animal. I love that. Um, my wife uh, remembers that verse a lot when she sees some of the stuff I do. You were like a dumb animal, man. Let's do that again. Uh, verse 23, 24, recognition of God's faithfulness. I love this. Nevertheless, before, during, and after my spiritual crisis, and right now that I've resolved it, I'm continually with you. Not because of anything in me, but because you've taken hold of my right hand. I've often said when, you know, when I, as a, as a grandfather now, if me and Lincoln or me and Vivian were going to be walking, uh, along, uh, a road up in the mountains, Mount Scott or something, and there was a drop off, number one, there's no way I would, I would hold their hand and have them on that side. Okay. Number one, I'm going to have them over here, right? But let's just for funsies say that we're going to walk along this precipice. I'm not going to let her, Vivian, hold on to my hand. What am I going to do? I'm going to hold on to hers, man. I'm not going to let her, you know, see a butterfly go off the, the side of the mountain. And that's what he's saying here. The reason that for this believer who's openly really mad at God, and a lot of us have been there, if you want to be honest, I have been a few times over the years, just you can't handle it. Uh, he said, even in the midst of all that, I'm still with you. I'm still connected with you because you took hold of my right hand. You're holding on to me. I'm not holding on to you. Right? Is that beautiful? And then beautiful, you want a, a theme verse for this year, any year? With your counsel, you'll guide me. Right? The believer's life is going to be led by his spirit and his scripture. And then afterward, receive me to glory. That's 
you know, Christian life. You know, that little dash, you know, 1953 dash to 2053. I'm going to live to be 100, right? Because when I turn 50, so when I turned 50 a long time ago now, my wife said, Brad, I think you're going to live to be 100. I said, why? She said, because you look half dead right now. So, so I'm going to be 100. So that little dash they put on your gravestone, that, that can be summed up with, with God's counsel, he was led, and now he's been received to glory. And it's all because of the work of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, verse 25 through 27, with appreciation of God's future plans. Whom have I in heaven but you? You never have a U-Haul being uh, uh, pulled by a hearse, do you? Because it can't take it with you. Uh, besides you, ultimately, you're all I need. My flesh and my heart will fail. Actually, said, that's what the Hebrew says, may fail, but it's just a, which concedes it. So will fail, really, is a good English translation. It's going to happen uh, if you live long enough. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion, everything I need forever. But behold, those who are far from you, unregenerate, and he's looking at the worst case where they really prosper and have power and make fun of God and blaspheme, and maybe in the name of false religion, maybe in the name of nothing of themselves. Uh, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who don't trust in you. But, and then verse 28, acceptance of his role in the plan, but as for me... The nearness of God right now and always is my good. You've got to lean on it and believe it and abide in Christ. And that that's, can't be taken away when the stock market crashes. Bottom line, I've made the Lord God my refuge for eternity and therefore now too. And my job is not to question His goodness, but to tell of His greatness. Wow. A lot of bang for the buck in that psalm. Kind of an extended paraphrase I would give to that last verse, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge so that regardless of my circumstances now, rather than questioning Him slash you, notice He goes to the second person in that last statement, I may tell of all your works. You know, we said that the Bible's all about the good news, right, Sean? But it's also got a lot of hard news. It's got a lot of bad news. And... A big part of that bad news is so often in this world, Rodina, uh, bad things do happen to really great, tremendous people, and a lot of terrific stuff uh, happens to really, really bad, slimy people. Uh, sometimes you you idolize somebody, and you look look up to somebody, and you really think they're great, and then you actually meet them, or you or you interact with them informally in a large group, and you see them when the camera's off, and they're just jerks, you know, they're just so self-impressed jerks, and uh, you think, why didn't God just send a you know, thunderbolt wipe that guy out? It doesn't work like that most of the time. Now, here's the thing. In light of that hard news, here's a principle please take home with you. The now does not and cannot make sense apart from the not yet. Because God doesn't right all the wrongs now. God doesn't right all the wrongs in uh, our finite lifespan. But He's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to wipe away all the tears. Uh, and here's the thing. Those who have trusted in Christ for eternal life uh, should reject an earthbound perspective on their life now. If we've trusted Him forever, why can't we trust Him that He knows what He's doing now? Now, we're going to do something we've never done before. I'm going to call this mess or masterpiece. Okay? Mess or masterpiece. What is that? Is that a mess or masterpiece? That's Van Gogh's Starry Night. That's considered to be one of the greatest paintings of all time. Would you agree with that? Well, I would say 2014 it was a masterpiece. 2015 was a mess. But 
that's uh, Coach Gundy talking to Coach Stoops uh, just before Bedlam 2015, which was a mess. But it's nice to see they get along. Uh, Paul McCartney. Uh, Beatles broke up in 1970. He's had a long, continued, prosperous career. But people tend to think maybe his masterpiece solo album was Band on the Run. I like uh, Tug of War also, but uh, that's a good one. Master Masterpiece. Master Masterpiece. Now, some people say we ought to paint a bigger picture or a bigger smile on our face. Don't mess with Masterpiece. How about that? Now, some of you were here last week, you saw that. And you might say, well, in modern art, that's a Masterpiece. But really, there's a Masterpiece. Is that a Masterpiece? No. I mean, you got one, two, three, four parts... They don't seem to have any relation. I mean, the only uh, thing you can say is uh, they're kind of uh, squared off, you know, I guess. Watch. That's the way I look at my worst day, my worst circumstances. I see some of the relevant parts. doesn't look like a masterpiece to me. That's the way God sees it. We see some of the pieces, and then we assume that we're God's supervisor. We assume that we can second-guess God. And I know how that feels. Because everything you see does not add up. And the preacher tells us God only does masterpieces and God's good to his people. You go, how could that be? That's not a masterpiece. I mean, uh, you know, we've got the older twins, Vivian and Lincoln. We've got the younger twins, about nine months old. Uh, um, uh, let's see. Their name is, golly, I'm trying to open up my mind here. I know their name. Violet and Eloise. But Eloise could almost do that. They're nine months old. That's the way God sees it. See, we can't see all the pieces. Yeah, whoops, going too far. Golly, wrong, wrong direction, people. You didn't see any of that, right? That's not a masterpiece that is. That's all we see by faith. We can say, well, God sees it that way, or something very close to that. And presumably when we get on the other side, we can see more of that, or maybe with his help, all of that too. So, I would just say the hard news of things like bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, very often, is trumped by the good news. I'm not talking about Donald Trump either, okay? It's uh, trumped by the good news, right? Now, a big part of that for us as Christians is balancing the hard news with the good news because they're both in play all the time, okay? Now, I said in my introduction that the Bible's got hard news. All of sin comes from the glory of God, wages of sin is death. But is that the whole thing? Is that the whole mosaic of that verse? I stopped in the middle, didn't I, Sue? Because that's not the whole thing. Is that hard news? Yeah. Is that bad news? Yeah. But the full message of that statement isn't the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. See? Yeah. Let's not deny the hard news. Some people, that's Christians, they just deny it, you know, until it hits them. Then they can't, and they you know, punt the ball, you know. Can't deny that. Got to deal with it, but got to balance the bad news with the corresponding good news, and that's the way God always sees it, which is one reason He's happy about it. So I, I think that a lot of this goes back to our perspective. ASAP goes from radically questioning God's goodness to realizing His job is to proclaim His greatness, and He's happy about doing it because His mindset changes. The circumstances don't change in the psalm; He just has a different perspective. And I think so much of this, and I'm closing on this for sure, uh, prom- talking about promises, right? Um, 
two, three minutes, we're done. A big part of this is how do we think about ourselves and God? Really, really. I mean, I know theologically, me and Brent have theological training. We would answer all the questions right on a sheet of paper. But how do we actually integrate this in the way we think about reality around us? Uh, and I think a big part of this is realizing that we're God's child, we're not God's critic. We're God's servant, not his supervisor. Now, at the, the last message I taught in December before the new year, uh, I gave you, uh, we actually handed out something to you. This, uh, I call it the servanthood challenge. And we're talking about radical discipleship. And I said, radical discipleship should be routine. And I said, hey, I'm not going to do what a lot of churches would do is kind of give you this for a week, come back, sign it in front of the church, put it in a box, and we're going to hold you to it and stuff. I'm not wanting you to do that, but, you know, we, and I put this in the bulletin again this week. If you didn't get a chance to actually do this thing, I challenge you to do this before yourself and the Lord and just move yourself from God being your co-pilot to God being your pilot. Following the example of Jesus and rooted in our love for Him slash appreciation for our salvation through faith in Him, believers should freely, fully submit to a lifestyle of servanthood to the glory of our Savior, even though this will often involve giving up certain rights and privileges. Now, very few Christians will say, well, of course, I serve the Lord. I'm His servant. I'm His servant. That includes you serving others. That includes you bending way over backwards to get along with others. That includes you giving up certain rights and privileges to serve others because you're serving the Lord by serving others. And people who think getting in the ministry means you get to be in charge of everything, well, you, you have a lot of input on some things, but you're also the per- person who plans it, organizes it. You're the first one there. You make sure it's set up. Anything goes wrong, it's your fault. You're usually the last one to leave. Am I right, Brent, most of the time? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody thinks it's wonderful. I can just be in charge of something in church. I can boss everybody around. That's not the way it works. And that mindset uh, is not going to work when you deal with the hard things in life. We've got to embrace servanthood because it's the only legitimate way for us to think about Christian life, but it allows us not just to serve others, but to serve God consistently when bad things, hard things come, and they're coming. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, let your word go deep into our spirits and let this whole uh, radical way of thinking about uh, our lives and you and things around us and circumstances and other people Let that go so deep into our spirit, it comes out every pore. I pray, Father, for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart as your Holy Spirit has convicted them of their sin, their need, and their inability. Anyone who's not trusted Jesus Christ solely alone for salvation. I pray for that, the greatest miracle. Uh, The servanthood we're talking about here is the privilege and the responsibility of both believers who have eternal life. But if there's anyone here this morning, Father, I pray you'd open their eyes to see and rest in and trust in Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen Savior. Everything that can keep them out of heaven, Christ has paid for, and he offers eternal life as a free gift to the sinner who would trust him for it. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Empower us uh, to walk with you, to know you, and to serve you and to be empowered to face the ups and downs of of, of life with, with some basic stability to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.